I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's evolving role in the Pacific Islands. Countries like Australia, New Zealand, France, and the United States have long played active roles in the Pacific Islands, a vast region that covers more than 300,000 square miles or 800,000 square kilometers of land. The area is a hodgepodge of independent states and dependent states, as well as integral parts of non-Pacific Island countries. In recent years, the Pacific Islands region has received greater attention and its strategic importance is growing. One of the factors behind the spike in interest in the Pacific is China, which has stepped up its diplomatic and economic presence in many of the islands. Examples include increasing high-level exchanges and ramping up investment in ports and other infrastructure projects through the Belt and Road Initiative. China's growing involvement in the Pacific in turn has had an impact on the traditional actors in the region, who see risks posed by China's expanding presence and policies. What is driving China's increasing engagement in the region? And how are other regional powers responding? To answer these questions and to discuss China's growing presence in the Pacific Islands, I am joined by Dr. Anna Powells. Dr. Powells is a senior lecturer at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at Massey University in New Zealand. Anna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Let's start by talking about how China is perceived in the Pacific Islands. What's China's reputation? And and are views of China fairly consistent across the regions? Or are opinions um, quite diverse across the different islands? Well, it really depends on, on who you're speaking to in the region. So China's reputation and Pacific views of China are, as you can imagine, fairly complex and, and certainly far more nuanced than is necessarily reflected in sort of mainstream media and, and academic and policy work. Views really do differ across the region and within countries, depending on how both communities and political elites have experienced China. Uh, and this has shaped their everyday perceptions of China. And I think it's also important to note, too, that in the Pacific itself, six of Taiwan's 18 allies are in the Pacific, and that's the Solomon Islands, Nauru, Kiribati, um, the Marshall Islands, uh, Palau, and Tuvalu. And that obviously shapes the perspective of those island states towards China. Certainly, China has, has a reputation amongst many Pacific countries as being a friend, as being a partner in development, being having a positive force in the region. Uh, and then on the flip side, there's also been some concern as well around Chinese enabling corruption in some in some parts of the Pacific, around concerns over uh, Chinese dominance across the sort of the small business sector, uh, and the impact of of Chinese influence politically, but also in the development sphere and across natural resources. So it really does vary. But the overwhelming sort of sense is that Pacific states don't necessarily view China with the same a sense of, of China as a, as a threat or as a competitor uh, as, say, the Pacific's Western partners do, for instance. So in your writings, you've emphasized that most of the Pacific islands uh, perceive that they don't themselves have much agency and that 
often the discussion of China's influence in the region really neglects the Pacific Islanders themselves, and voices are, are really much more prominent in talking about Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., and France. So how do Pacific countries see themselves as managing China? Do they think that they have the capability to exercise this really difficult balancing act of dealing with the growing interest of the outside powers and China's growing um, influence and uh, engagement with the region? Absolutely. I mean, Pacific countries are, are no strangers to geopolitical competition. And the idea that Pacific countries and leaders lack agency in this is, is highly flawed. And it misses a really significant part of the picture that we need to understand as we try and understand the impact of China on the region, the impact that geopolitical competition will have on the region. And over the past couple of years, as I've been doing research for my work, it's been really clear that there is a very strong sense there are both you know, challenges and advantages to the Chinese presence and engagement in the region. There are obvious benefits to increased engagement that they see. For instance, Pacific leaders have welcomed the kind of competition that has emerged as a consequence of growing sort of geopolitical competition in the region. In 2017, the former Papua New Guinean Prime Minister, Peter O'Neill, made the comment that it's healthy that there are competing sources of finance for infrastructure projects and that competition between China, Australia and the United States are leading to funds being, more, being made available to the Pacific and that this was in the best interest of Pacific countries. So it means greater choice and greater opportunities. The Pacific Island countries have increasingly wanted to diversify away from traditional partners such as Australia and New Zealand. And they see Chinese engagement and this growing geopolitical competition as a means of doing that as well. The downside, as you mentioned too, is the sense that Pacific voices have been largely ignored as part of this debate. And significantly that the security concerns of Pacific Island countries, particularly around climate change, have not been privileged to the same extent that concerns about China and geopolitical competition have been. And the danger here is that these local level, these, these regional and existential security concerns are potentially subsumed under this wider umbrella of, of competition it ultimately will really sort of damage Australia and New Zealand and, the, and particularly Australia and the US going forward in terms of their engagement with the region because of that sort of frustration that there's this assumption, this applied assumption that Pacific states are these passive dupes to Chinese influence, that they're unaware or unable to negotiate and navigate these tensions. So the concerns about Chinese loans really around the world uh, through this Belt and Road Initiative have been talked about quite a bit by U.S. officials and, and Australia officials and, and other countries in the region. Recently, there was a, a State Department official from the United States Sandra Odrick, she's the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Australia, New Zealand, and Pacific Islands here in Washington. And she warned, quote, that there's a strong risk that these loans, of course referring to China's loans, have the potential to be exploited for political leverage to extract additional concessions. And we've recently heard uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, when he visited the region, also talk about what is often referred to as China's debt trap diplomacy. Now, of course, we know China's loans and also investment started really before the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. 
but it has increased. And these concerns probably aren't completely new. But I'd like you to talk about maybe how legitimate these charges are. Is the U.S. and, of course, also Australia correctly characterizing the challenges that China's increased loans and investment pose to the region? Are we missing opportunities? Well, I think it's, I mean, certainly the debt trap narrative has really dominated a lot of the strategic anxiety around Chinese influence in the Pacific. But it's it's pretty clear that it misses some critical parts of the picture, actually. And whilst there are concerns, and these have been documented well by um, by two academic colleagues, Matt Dornan and, and Rohan Fox, who have written extensively around Chinese lending in the Pacific and the argument that Chinese lending forms part of this of an intentional strategy um, by China to pressure Pacific Island governments, and that Beijing is being accused of excessively lending to countries that lack the capacity to repay these loans. However, what we are seeing, once the numbers have been unpacked a little bit more, is that whilst China does hold approximately around 12% of the total debt owed by, by Pacific Island countries, and in the case of Tonga and Samoa and Vanuatu, Chinese lending comprises over one third of the total debt. And of those three countries, Tonga is most at risk with two thirds of Tonga's approximately sort of 240 million um, external debt, 41% of its GDP owed to China's Exim Bank. There are concerns around that. There are concerns around the ability to service their loans, particularly in the case of Tonga. However, we need to remember also that so far, China has not been able to leverage these economic relationships and to leverage their loans in order to pressure Pacific countries to support um, China on particular issues. The example that immediately comes to mind is, is when China sought to garner uh, support amongst Pacific states for its position on the South China Sea. Uh, it was only Vanuatu who was very capable and, and is servicing its loans very well. Only Vanuatu voiced its support for China. Whereas Tonga, for instance, who is in a potentially more compromised position with, with China, did not in that case, and, and nor did a number of other countries. What concerns me more than, than certainly around the, this debt trap um, diplomacy narrative, the concerns around the kind of pressure that China is placing uh, on countries, particularly as the diplomatic recognition, the, the competition steps up between Taiwan and China in the region, and China has successfully sort of sought to sway a number of countries in the region around its relationships with, with Taiwan and is seeking to do so um, in regards to the Solomon Islands particularly. And the question too down the track with how much countries may owe to, to China and keeping in mind that even though China has promised a great deal, has committed a great deal in terms of donations and concessionary loans, it's, it hasn't actually paid out at the same degree uh, to which it's promised so far. A real concern here lies around what happens down the track uh, when countries are unable to, to service those loans and where any sort of implied pressure could come from at that point. So it is, in some respects, it is a legitimate concern, but it's important to also keep in mind that Pacific countries have a great deal of agency and they've demonstrated that they have been able to renegotiate loans with China. And, and that is something that has occurred both within the Pacific and outside of the region. And so there is leverage there. Uh, that Pacific states are, are quite adept at using, actually. So it's not a foregone conclusion by any any stretch of the imagination. 
Could you talk a little bit about how you see Chinese interests in the region? In May of this year, Xi Jinping was receiving the prime minister of Vanuatu, and he said very explicitly, China does not seek a sphere of influence or so-called sphere of influence in the Pacific. Do you accept that statement? And what do you think the reasons are for, for China engaging as it is in the region? Is it economic, political, strategic? I think it's a combination of all those things. I think it's been fairly clear for a number of years that that Chinese interests in the region uh, could be grouped under sort of three main kind of broad categories, you know, resources being a major one, fisheries, obviously, access to protein is a significant interest for China, and then into the future around deep sea mining being an area which China is, is, is very interested in in the Pacific, as well as other resources, oil and gas, logging, uh, and so forth. Then, of course, as I mentioned before, there is the diplomatic competition with Taiwan, because six of Taiwan's 18 allies being in the Pacific. So again, we're seeing the step up of competition in the region between, as China is sort of seeking to isolate uh, Taiwan's allies in the Pacific, Last year uh, at the Pacific Islands Forum, the preeminent political body at the, the leaders' meeting in Nauru, which Nauru recognises Taiwan, China really pushed to push its presence there. The head of the Chinese delegation at the post-forum dialogue demanded to speak and, and stormed out of the delegation, stormed out of the meeting after it was refused the opportunity to speak. Then next week, the Pacific Islands Forum meeting is being held in Tuvalu, which also recognises Taiwan. And we're hearing that, that China is seeking to leverage its influence through countries like Papua New Guinea and again demanding an opportunity to speak. So we're seeing this uptick in competition, this, this real disruption in competition again in the Pacific. So there's that reason. Then, of course, part of China's broader diplomatic and strategic interests, including sort of Sino-US rivalry and seeking greater influence in the Pacific is, is very much increasingly part of that. How China has sought to secure its interest is, is less kind of clear. It's not an entirely coherent or joined up strategy that we're seeing. It's sort of a combination of strategic design, elements of that, political opportunism, commercial interest, and so forth. But what is clear is that we are definitely seeing China has certainly sped up its and deepened its engagement in the region, in the Pacific. But that by comparison with China's engagement elsewhere, uh, such as in Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America, the Pacific still remains a, a relative minnow uh, in terms of China's focus. And the question for many of us is what will happen if and when China decides to ramp up its engagement um, in the Pacific? And so we've seen this shift from more sort of Chinese sort of soft balancing in the region through sort of economic and diplomatic and development engagement, education and so forth, to a more coherent and more overt strategy and as evidence through things like increased uh, security sector engagement, for instance, as well as pushing the BRI, Belt and Road, uh, in the Pacific. And so there certainly is a step up in, in engagement, a step up in interest in the region, and a, and a clear indication that China is here probably you know, in the region for, for, for the long haul and is certainly positioning itself as a partner to Pacific countries. One of the developments that I think really sparked alarm in uh, Australia was the discussion that I think started about a year ago about the possibility of China 
uh, building a, a military base because it's invested in this port at uh, Luganville in Vanuatu. If that really were to come about, if China were to set up a naval base there, what is the threat that that would pose? What, what would be the consequences then in the region? Well, there was certainly when the when the spectre of a of a possible Chinese base or a dual use port, rather in the case of Luganville, was raised uh, last year or so, there was obviously sort of intense debate about what this would mean. Uh, certainly, from an Australian defence perspective, there were significant concerns that a Chinese uh, military presence would significantly shift the strategic balance in the region, and and that would have potential severe consequences for for Australia down the track. Now, New Zealand, on the on the other hand, came out. The New Zealand Prime Minister came out quite strongly, uh, stating that New Zealand opposed any militarisation of the Pacific. And this conversation hasn't gone away at all. Um, there has been discussion for for quite a number of years, even prior to the case of Luganville Wharf, about the potential for a Chinese base, whether it be in Vanuatu or in Samoa or in Tonga. There's been an enormous amount of speculation around that. And it all ties back to concerns that a security orthodoxy in the region would shift significantly as a consequence of that, and that that could potentially limit Australia and, and by extension, New Zealand, both influence, um, strategic influence in the region, but also certainly in terms of any kind of sort of area denial operations that, that China might choose to engage in. Now, that hasn't come to fruition. And again, this was... When this, the issue of the, the base came about, a number of Pacific Island leaders responded very strongly that they objected to this kind of foghorn diplomacy, that Pacific countries were sovereign states, and that they were, most importantly, were perfectly capable of making these choices and decisions themselves. And this is where some of this conversation is kind of not hitting the right mark here, that it's missing the fact that by any kind of foghorn diplomacy sort of lecturing the Pacific on what it can or cannot do based on Western strategic interests, uh, it's more likely to actually undermine those very interests in the first in the first place. Now, the likelihood of a base, what is actually more interesting, actually, than necessarily a base being established is the fact that uh, the Chinese uh, have been increasingly engaged in extracting citizens following natural disasters. In the region, and as we see increased natural disasters, we are likely to see increased engagement by the Chinese military to extract their citizens. And whether or not through that we see an increase in military presence, I think is potentially there. But again, it's still a question which is speculative at this point. But there's no doubt that there is some interest in certainly developing some kind of logistical capability in the region. Do you think that Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. are on the same page in terms of how they assess the risks that China poses in the Pacific Islands and then what to do about it? So we've seen Prime Minister Scott Morrison establish the $2 billion infrastructure financing fund. Uh, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and Japan are working together on development financing in the region. We have the electrification project in Papua New Guinea. Are all three countries sort of working in lockstep toward the same goal? Or are there divisions between the three in terms of how they assess the problems and, and, and how to work together to address them? Well, I think it's natural to have a degree of divergence amongst all, all partners. But I also think it's incredibly important to also acknowledge that 
none of this happened in a vacuum. China's ability to to sort of step into the breach in the, in the Pacific and develop the relationships that it has and to establish the, the degree of influence it has is largely due to the fact that Australia, New Zealand and, and the United States neglected the Pacific for a number of decades. And now in sort of stepping up in this sort of this policy dash for the Pacific that's occurred since 2017 with the Australian step up, the New Zealand Pacific reset, you know, US re-engagement and so forth, there's a great deal sort of policy on a run happening. And whilst projects like the electrification project are highly significant projects, why wasn't that done before? Why wasn't that on the cards before? Um, did it just take China and 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 the so-called sort of the, the threat of China and the region to galvanize this kind of action? There are obvious divergences between the three countries. Obviously, uh, Australia's stance on climate change is enormously significant in terms of its credibility in the region, and we're likely to see that play out very strongly at the Pacific Island Forum meeting next week in Tuvalu. And there's also the question of the need for greater coordination amongst Australia and New Zealand and the US, but also even more importantly, what the Pacific countries are calling for is to engage with them directly, to stop, to not be having conversations about the Pacific or over the Pacific and not actually engaging with them directly. What has frequently not been recognised that the Pacific island countries had been driving a very robust agenda of their own for a long time. And uh, many of the strategic conversations that are happening at the moment fail to recognise this. And in failing to recognise this, they are undermining, it is it is directly undermining the objectives of Australia and New Zealand and, and, and the US and the region. So what needs to happen, as well as a conversation between those countries about shared interests and how to go about achieving that, even more importantly, is engaging with Pacific countries and, and actually speaking to what their concerns and what their priorities are. And that will actually be a far more successful strategy than if they are actually ignored. Well, Secretary of State Pompeo was just in the Pacific Islands and, and apparently made the first ever visit by a U.S. Secretary of State to the Federated States of Micronesia. I hope that he was a good listener when he was there, but he was also conveying messages. What do you think his message was and, and how do you think it was received? Well, I think, again, you know, we've seen a lot of first visits over the past couple of years from US and, and Australian officials to the region. There is a degree of cynicism amongst Pacific Island countries that this sudden uptick in, in interest is, is purely driven by China. And Secretary of State Pompeo uh, made the statement there that uh, he said something along the lines of, pleased to announce that the US has begun negotiating um, on extending the compacts of free association. And critically, he states that because they sustain, the compact sustained democracy in the face of Chinese efforts to redraw the Pacific. So once again, we have this framing of the relationship of those compact states with the US in terms of China. The question for the compact states is, are their concerns necessarily being listened to? I mean, concerns around um, self-determination, concerns about the militarization um, of their islands. And how well reflected are their concerns in in these discussions? So yes, there's a whole lot of new interest, but from what I hear, there are some strong concerns that the concerns of of, of the compact states are not necessarily actually being listened to, because once again, the, the the relationship is being framed in terms of a security threat. 
Could you leave us maybe with some suggestions of what you think steps are that should be taken by New Zealand, Australia, the United States in order to not really counter Chinese influence, but to strengthen the ability of Pacific Island states to manage their relations with China? I think you've, I mean, you've hit on the point here that it's not about countering China and the region. And for some for some time, there was a sense that there was a competition. Um, and that's certainly not what Pacific leaders want. They have consistently called for greater cooperation between all partners in the Pacific. But given that there are credible concerns that do need to be addressed as well, and one of the things that, that when I've been asked this question in DC and, and elsewhere, is the need for much smarter sustained and more consistent engagement and diplomacy and fundamental things like deploying diplomats with language and cultural skills, framing and developing policy that is clearly about sustained and consistent and committed engagement with Pacific states beyond China, irrelevant to China in many respects, that amplifies and addresses Pacific concerns, starting obviously with issues like climate change, with the issues raised in the Boy Declaration, of, of 2018 and really demonstrating long-term commitment. The the phrase that I've, I've heard used around the region quite a lot is that all this new engagement from Australia, New Zealand, the US uh, and the UK and so forth is, is like old wine and new bottles. And that while increased expenditure on development, defence projects, etc., will make a superficial difference in the region, it won't actually increase influence in the region. And in the Pacific, like in other regions, but very, very importantly in the Pacific, trust is very much the currency in the region and, and relationships trump policy every single time. And, and that means that countries have to be in there for the long haul and have to be able to demonstrate that they're in there for the long haul. And that means not framing discussions in terms of necessarily in terms of shared values because that can undermine Pacific agency and create a false dichotomy, but really framing it in terms of what's of mutual importance and acknowledging and recognising and amplifying those issues that are fundamentally important to the Pacific um, countries. And again, bringing back to the issue of climate change being fundamental to that. So I think it's it's fairly sort of basic 101 in terms of engagement, but it's frequently forgotten. And what is clear to me um, throughout my research over the last couple of years is that there is um, and last you know, couple of decades, really, is that there is a, a small window of opportunity here for partners like Australia and the US and New Zealand and others to get it right. If we don't get it right, if we don't demonstrate sustained, genuine commitment to the Pacific, my concern is that we won't get another opportunity very quickly at all. And so there is that small window of opportunity and a big risk of failing to actually deliver what the Pacific are actually calling for. And that means that this cannot just simply be framed in terms of China and needs to be far more in-depth, genuine, sustained commitment than, than we've seen in the past, certainly. Excellent advice. And I hope that policymakers take it in um, both of our countries and other actors in the Pacific Islands. We've been talking with Dr. Anna Powells, who is Senior Lecturer at the Center for Defense and Security Studies at Massey University in New Zealand. Anna, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you very much for having me. 